and we had one, this is like the most memorable phone call, I think probably of all time, um, where someone was suggesting that we just add a huge bad word zipper to like everything that we sold so that, you know, moms and dads on the playground would quickly recognize that that style is from primary. And so things like that, I think we have consciously made a very authentic decision here to not do logos and slogans because we want to keep the clothes simple so the kids can shine. But we're definitely missing out on an opportunity for people to be walking down the street and saying like, oh, there goes a primary t-shirt, um, which for us is the whole brand. It is this, you know, leveling the playing field, primary is for everyone. We don't need kids to be walking billboards to advertise our clothes. The simplicity and the color sort of speaks for itself. That's Galen Bernard. She and Christina Carbonell are the co-founders of the cult children's clothing brand, Primary. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. The explosion of choice for consumers over the past few decades has been astounding. Thanks to advances in manufacturing, the shift away from physical goods into digital goods, and the rapid pace of globalization, businesses are now able to offer many more products than they did in the past. Think about this. Amazon can offer 10,000 times the selection of your local supermarket, not to mention that it never closes, it tailors pricing to the individual, and it allows you to instantly enjoy millions of books, songs, and movies from the comforts of your sofa. And if you think that's dizzying, this trend is only going to continue thanks to 3D printing, big data, and artificial intelligence. My guests today are fighting that trend of dizzying choice and trying to make things simple for the customers. Gillen Bernard and Christina Carbonell are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Primary, a children's clothing brand on a mission to help every child dress with confidence. The brand offers a curated assortment of classic gender-neutral styles in a rainbow of colors and patterns for babies and kids size 0 to 12. As early employees of Quidzy, Galen and Christina previously led marketing for Diapers.com and went on to launch and manage nine additional e-commerce sites in categories such as toys, home, and children's clothing. Quidzy was acquired by Amazon in 2010. Both are graduates of Harvard Business School, and Galen earned her undergraduate degree at Princeton while Christina studied at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Galen and Christina. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to have both of you in the studio today here in New York City. I'd like to start the show with the same question for everybody. So my question for you is, everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. What turns you into a FOMO sapiens? Start with Galen. The thing that has been turning me into a FOMO sapien is the inability to do things in, at nighttime. We work really hard, and we both have two kids, and so I really like to get home for dinner time, which is 7, 7.30, which means I have to leave the city by 5.30, and so fun dinners with friends, networking events, things like that have to fall by the wayside, and so I definitely feel like I'm sort of missing out on this community that is so great um, in New York around startups, but also sort of with friends. I wish that I like, was still in college sometimes. Christina. 
If I'm being honest, what turns me into a FOMO sapien is really the fear of missing out on delicious food. <laughs> food is very much an important fuel for everything that we do every day. And we get really busy. And often we're just trying to like jam together a lunch at like two o'clock when we realize we haven't eaten. And I'm like, really, we're going to have another bowl? <laughs> and we do really love good food. So trying to build that into our day as a source of joy and, uh, and, and fuel is um, something that we work on. All right. So you two are the founders and co-CEOs of Primary. Tell us about Primary. Uh, so Primary is a baby and kids clothing company that we started five years ago. Uh, Christina and I had worked together at what started as 1-800-DIAPERS back in 2007. Christina was employee number three. Um, both of us um, in marketing functions there um, on diapers.com, but also the other nine websites that we launched from there. Um, and so Primary really was a little bit of a function of our experience at diapers.com where we spent so much time there thinking about you know great elevated replenishment experience for busy parents on things like diapers and wipes and formula. And at the same time, we're shopping in the enormous kids' clothing market for our own kids and just feeling like we were having anything but an elevated, easy shopping experience in the category. And so that felt like an opportunity for us. In addition to that, I think from a more personal standpoint, we were wishing that there were clothing brands in the marketplace for our kids like we had growing up, like Benetton and Esprit and some of these brands that were felt happy and colorful and simple um, versus very gendered. I have twin girls. They don't like pink and purple. I had to buy them a boy's jacket because they wanted orange. Um, things like that felt outdated and sort of out of touch with what we were looking for in the market. And so we started Primary really to solve both of those things, a really easy, straightforward shopping experience for busy parents where awesome clothes are available at accessible prices, um, but also the sort of opportunity to build a brand that meant something to this generation of parents and could stand for something clear, which is inclusivity. Um, our whole orientation on the site is gender neutral. We don't prescribe these styles are for girls and these styles are for boys. And so there's no such thing as a you know pink princess girl section or a red fire engine boys section. Um, and customers have been really passionate about that since the beginning. So I recently went to buy children's clothing. Mm -hmm. I have a brand new niece, and I walked into, I guess, I don't want to name names here, but it was a major children's retailer. Mm -hmm. And I this is something I hadn't done recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was quite shocked at how it was sort of red or pink and how separated those categories were and how it, you really uh, – and it felt a little out of touch with the times. And I'm curious. It's an interesting opportunity. Entrepreneurs are obviously – identify an opportunity and then go after it. Why do you think that this market opportunity exists in the first place? You have, as you mentioned, a huge industry where lots of different people are playing. And by the way, it's at all price points because any store you walk into, maybe it says $50 on the item, but they're marking it down at $3.99 or something because that seems to be where retail is going. But you are doing something completely different. I guess I'm wondering why this market opportunity hadn't been filled before. Uh, it's interesting to us as well. Um, it is a huge market, but there are a lot of traditional players that have been doing things the same way for a long time, and that is a lot about trend and fashion and the cool thing today. And uh, with that, just a lot of traditional norms about what that means for girls and boys in particular. And for us, it was a lot about 
what we're not doing that is the magic of primary. We are not doing logos. We're not doing sequins uh, and tons of embellishments. By keeping it really simple and focusing on the classic styles that kids wear every day with just a breadth of color, a rainbow of color for every kid without prescribing what's for boys and what's for girls. It's just a totally different take in the market. It's a modern brand uh, rooted in values that parents today care about. So one of the things we talk a lot about on this show is FOBO or fear of a better option, which is this idea that we live in a time of seemingly limitless choice. So if you go onto Amazon, and this is, we love you, Amazon, obviously. (laughs) Anybody who has Prime knows it's basically uh, very hard not to go on on Amazon and buy things every day. Mm -hmm. But when you go on Amazon and you search for an item, very simple item, white shoelaces, you could have thousands of, of, of opportunities to buy all kinds of different things. And that creates uh, paralysis and indecision and, and stasis. And so the idea that we have more and more choice, in some ways, of course, it's very good. You don't want to live in a Soviet society where you can only buy one kind of milk. But at the same time, when you are overwhelmed with choice, it can be very difficult to extract yourself from that and move on with your day. And so as I think about what you're doing vis-a-vis many of the other retailers out there, you're really solving the FOBO problem because when you when you go to the site, and it's really worth checking out the site, primary.com, you see a simple array of really nice things, but you could buy, theoretically, I guess, the same T-shirt in nine colors for all of your kids, and you don't have to worry about the, the sparkles and the, the bows and the logos and all these sorts of things because it's simple. Mm-hmm. And so as I think about that, when you were ideating on this idea, you, you're coming from a place where you had a lot of data. Diapers.com was, you know, is and was and will be for a while a leader in its, in its space. But was there something that you saw in the research? How did you get the confidence to know that this very specific approach was going to work? I think a couple things. I think one, it's a little bit of a combination for us. Um, a big part of it was gut, but also sort of supported by data, where our gut was that there was an opportunity for someone to become an authority on best-selling kid styles. Having been at diapers.com, knowing that like the basis of a customer relationship is great products at good prices with a good experience, elevated customer service, um, and products that people could count on and understand. And so for us... This was all about curation from the beginning. This was all about, like, what are the core set of styles that every kid wears all day, every day, that customers are going to want to come back and rebuy as their kids grow? And with that, from the beginning, we had a 10-year business plan in a spreadsheet with about 30 tabs (laughs) of of projections. So it was all based on our hypotheses, but there was a thesis that with this focus on the core best-selling styles that kids wear and keeping it simple that we could avoid a lot of complexity and a lot of cost and reinvest those savings into better value for the customer. And we projected what that would look like in terms of a financial outlook, in terms of a customer relationship, and for the last five years we've been proving that out. I like the that vision that you had and, and it oftentimes we think that people start companies on a napkin, which, which may be it's a nice story, and it may be the case that maybe there's a napkin in the room, but there's probably a computer. <laughs> From napkin to detailed model. Exactly, right into the spreadsheet, yes. which, is, which, is, which is what happens when you have experience in the industry. And what I like about um, your story is that uh, your entrepreneurial journey 
began in a place that you know, was entrepreneurial itself, but it's a corporate world, and you built the skills to do that, and mm-hmm. then went out on your own. So, your your brand is is quite uh, popular around town. And I had Jen Wong, the COO of Reddit, in the studio the other day, and I mentioned you were coming in, and she basically told me that you are her solution to all of her child shopping needs. And so it started me thinking about uh, number one, sort of. How have you built your customer base? Because I saw uh, a little information on the fact that you had a 6,000-unit wait list on uh, your new Heart PJs, which <laughs> sound adorable, by the way, and a 4,000-person uh, wait list on your raincoat. And so that's very interesting because as we talk about consumer behavior these days where people are torn in all directions, the ability to create that kind of pent-up demand and then lock people in into a wait list is super interesting for anybody who's trying to build a business online. So how do you, number one, get that kind of um, that kind of consumer customer engagement? And then what does your client look like? And, and why are they coming to you vis-a-vis running to Old Navy or wherever where they could pay $3.99 for something that's on sale because it's been sitting on the shelf forever? Uh, so, you know, a solution for busy parents becomes something that fuels word of mouth. Parents want to tell each other about a cool solution that they find, and this is one of them. And that was also our experience, of course, at diapers.com. Uh, we also um, work really hard to get the word out about what we're doing, and we've learned a lot about the fact that our point of view is resonating, and we just have to put it out there, and then people start talking about it. So as soon as we started saying that not all you know, baby onesies need to say little slugger or mommy's little genius... <laughs> or daddy's little princess, uh, parents really responded to that um, and, you know, often said, where has this been? We can't believe that um, this didn't always exist. Um, You know, thank you so much. We love what you stand for. And so uh, we do a lot of that kind of marketing and advertising and social media. Um, We also market offline uh, to parents with new uh, babies and young children and really just let them know what our point of view is. And then once we have them, uh, I think our unique approach of having this assortment that you can count on and continue to come back and rebuy your favorites as your kids grow is a huge part of why customers uh, then just keep coming back. Uh, And that happens very organically. And it's really the power of the business. There's a funny thing, too, kind of related to to the clothes and where we got started, related also to fear of missing out, which is, like, even early on, we had a lot of potential investors saying, okay, got it. Like, these clothes are great. But, like, how are customers on the playground going to recognize that something's primary? And we had one... This is like the most memorable phone call, I think, probably of all time, um, where someone was suggesting that we just add a huge bad word zipper to like everything that we sold so that, you know, moms and dads on the playground would quickly recognize that that style is from primary. And so things like that, I think we have consciously made a very authentic decision here to not do logos and slogans because we want to keep the clothes simple so the kids can shine. But we're definitely missing out on an opportunity for people to be walking down the street and saying like, oh, there goes a primary t-shirt, um, which for us is the whole brand. It is this you know, leveling the playing field, primary is for everyone. We don't need kids to be walking billboards to advertise our clothes. The simplicity and the color sort of speaks for itself. Um, but I think definitely has, has been an interesting sort of basis of conversation where people don't understand how we can build this brand without some huge visible logo on the clothing itself. I'm wearing a t-shirt that says Daddy's Little Slugger right now. <laughs> I just want to let you know that. So, and it has a zipper. <laughs> big, big one. But 
you have chosen to do something very simple. And the minute you start talking to investors, especially when you're talking about a product that people can understand. So if you were talking about AI for uh, surgical devices or something <laughs> real that right. none of us would ever understand, <laughs> very few people would have a viewpoint on that. Ergo, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to deal with all of the, the little suggestions. And by the way, some of these are good suggestions, maybe. Mm-hmm. But when you're raising uh, money for a company that a lot of people have been been at a store that sells children's clothing or they bought, they all start so they start bringing in the ideas. Well, you know, I'd love to invest, but if you know, I really want you to do a monthly box, whatever the flavor of the month is, mm-hmm. and you uh, and you are you have to resist the temptation to have a mission creep. And also, once they invest, then and this happens to so many companies. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, you have fifteen million dollars. Well, we should expand into adults, and we should become the next American Apparel, and all these sorts of things. And so you have a decision there as entrepreneurs. Are you? Are you going to stick to your guns? Or perhaps there are good ideas, and maybe you're going to learn from those things and expand. But that decision about sticking to your core, what's worked for you in the beginning, or what your vision is, vis-a-vis letting your investors or other influences kind of come in and and color what you're doing, I imagine that's a daily struggle. So I'd love to hear about how you deal with that, the kinds of things you're seeing, and, and how you're able to either integrate those ideas or dismiss them in order to stick with what you're doing already. Well, I think for us, focus has been really important for us since the very beginning. Um, We are operators, and we definitely learned at Quidsy that there are a million different ways and paths you could go down to scale and continue to build customer relationships. But in order to sort of get things right, it's important to to stay focused and make sure that you're putting sort of all your efforts into something to make sure you understand how it will play out. Um, And so for us, I think that's been a great learning, um, you know, in terms of marketing channels and clothing and and things like that. Um, And we have learned to have a little bit of thick skin. I think we we love to learn and we're very open to new ideas and new ways of thinking and love to test things, especially when it's a two-way door and it's not going to tie up a bunch of resources. Um, but I think for us, you know, five years in, having really strong conviction and now a lot of evidence and data from the market to back it up, um, I think we feel more and more confident that the way to win with this business is staying more focused versus less um, and going harder on the things that we really believe in. Um, And so I think it's just allowed us to sort of put earmuffs on a little bit. And so when we get ideas, whether it's from investors or otherwise, um, to sort of go down the slippery slope of trend, Mm -hmm. or in other cases, to raise our prices, for example, and make this less accessible to all families, um, those are things that we resist because those are uh, things that we know are important to the, the brand that Primary is really rooted in. It's interesting as I listen to you talk, it seems like you're finishing each other's sentences sometimes. <laughs> and in fact, you are co-CEOs of the business, which is unusual. If I think about it, I'm trying to think of examples that I've heard about in the past. And I know Rent the Runway, I believe, had co-CEOs for a period of time. Mm-hmm. The Skim. The Skim. <laughs> there you go. Another awesome company <laughs> that we love. But it is unusual. And I'm wondering, number one, how you came to that decision. And then if this is something that, as you talk to investors, for example, who are very focused on organizational behaviors mm-hmm. and, sort of the, and sort of the org structure, if this is something that people felt good about or if they always said to you, I can imagine some people say, well, this is fine for now, but one day you're going to have mm-hmm. to pick one of you, right? I, how do you think about this whole situation? Uh, we view our partnership as a superpower, uh, for a lot of reasons. Running a company is hard. Uh, having a 
partnership where you can count on each other, bounce things off of each other, and go through those ups and downs together. It's hard for us to imagine doing it alone, although we're, uh, we admire people who do. Uh, we um, complement each other, and we're also able to divide and conquer on a lot of things that, that make this work. For example, I am more focused on marketing, and Galen is more focused on merchandising and supply chain. So though we function as co-CEOs, we do have huge areas of the company that we each lead. Uh, and then when it comes to really important strategic decisions, we come back together. What becomes important in terms of decision-making, because often an investor will say, but who decides? Who has the last say? Uh, and the way that we tend to operate, which works well for us, is that it matters who feels strongly about something. And it matters to know when you feel strongly about something. And when you do, you give it to the other person. You give it to the person who feels the most strongly. Uh, and so for us, that has really worked. And all of the time that we've been doing this over the last five years, there's never been an instance where we both felt equally strongly about something and felt differently about how to approach it. Uh, and all of the benefits of... Um, being able to um, make these important decisions together and support each other has just been a real superpower for us in running the business. So I imagine when it comes to these big decisions, and you probably had some some more strategic around fundraising or, or, or some of these other things, there's a lot of conversation that happens. And how do you how do you root those conversations in in data and not mm-hmm. in feelings? I think for us, we are so rooted in data that it's natural for us to, you know, sort of go to the facts um, and, you know, definitely try to make sure that emotion stays out of the conversation where it's not appropriate. But I think we also recognize that sometimes it is appropriate. And Mm -hmm. we definitely believe strongly in the power of art and science. And so a lot of times, you know, are making a gut decision because the data just isn't available in the way that we wish it was. But it's good to be able to articulate that, too, and just say, you know what? I don't really have like a factual basis. I can't really write like an articulate one pager on this, but I feel just like in my gut really strongly about it. And so I'm not going to feel embarrassed to say that. And it goes without saying, but no egos is critical. And I think it helps that we are older. (laughs) Because at this point, I think we have enough perspective on a lot of things that ego rarely factors in. It is a point that we've made before on the show, which is oftentimes there is this perception of entrepreneurs being 22 Mm -hmm. and breaking things and moving fast and not caring. And you really speak to the fact that you went and built a career, gained the requisite expertise, and you come at it from this this base of experience, which allows you when you're making decisions to tie it all together. Intuition is so important to decision-making, but what happens is it becomes clouded by emotion and you know, the FOMOs and the phobos of the world, which which start to take us away from what our gut would be telling us were we not, were we not sort of um, victim to those types of feelings. And so if you can strip away as much of those things, or at least recognize they're there, then you can open the door to allowing your intuition to inform your decisions alongside all the data. Because nobody has perfect data, even in startup land, in the world of big data. I think it's the other way around. You've got so much data that it's sort of like, how the heck are we going to decide on all of these things? I'm curious. So it sounds like smooth sailing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I imagine you probably made some big mistakes. And and I'd love to hear about... A biggie, a big, just disastrous thing that you had to un, un, uh, unwind. Yeah, the biggest one, um, you know, was also the biggest learning for us early on where we just dramatically, it's like not even the right word for it, underestimated how hard it would be to make clothing. 
Um, we came from e-commerce and marketing backgrounds. We both worked at Kraft Foods, but you know, weren't making the product there, and it's very different than apparel. Um, and sort of felt coming into this that we were smart enough and were excited to learn and really passionate about getting great product made that we could figure it out on our own. Um, and we couldn't. And so we ended up um, under-investing, obviously, in an area that was super important. Investing in the quality of clothing is kind of the whole thing. And so we were trying to be really scrappy, trying to be careful with budget and fixed expenses and overhead, um, and waited too long to make a really critical hire over supply chain. And so what that meant for us in the first 18 months was that, you know, our in-stock rates were really low. And as a business that's trying to establish itself as the go-to for busy parents on essential clothing, having an in-stock rate that isn't over 90% was really tough. Um, Also, you know, quality that wasn't consistent, deliveries that were late, things like that. And so it really took us getting to a really tough point where we weren't getting the product we needed and it wasn't at the quality level we wanted to just really say help to our network. Um, And that resulted in an amazing hire for us, which is our chief supply chain officer who, you know, had run sourcing and production at The Gap for many years and had the relationships in the industry that were necessary to make these clothes what we wanted them to be. Uh, But I think we just didn't learn enough early on about how critical those relationships were so that we would know that this just wasn't something we could figure out on our own, even if we put all of our sort of heart and soul into it. So this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. What is your number one tip for making decisions and sticking with them? Uh, Making decisions about what to focus on and sticking with it uh, starts with being firmly rooted in a vision that is hopefully not changing a lot. Um, Everyone understanding what we're driving toward and what mission is behind it, which for us is very much about helping kids feel confident in who they are uh, and letting kids be kids uh, and being inclusive uh, is at the core of everything that we do. But having said that, we still have a lot of opportunities in front of us in terms of how to get there. And one thing that we do is we pull the team into a room when we've got a lot of ideas that we could pursue. Um, It's a very diverse team, functionally and in terms of individual backgrounds, um, which of course leads us to make better decisions together. And we often use a framework of looking at opportunities based on what is the best fit with the brand that we're building, uh, what is the impact it can have in terms of how much it can move the needle for us in ways that matter, and then what effort is involved. And we will often take all the opportunities and literally put them on the table and map them, plot them out uh, against those variables. And it helps us to identify the ones that make the most sense to pursue first. And often it is a question of when, not if. Uh, and that helps the team too, because it's not necessarily the case that we're saying we're never going to do that, but we have to pick a few and execute really well now. So it sounds like that combination of structure, having a process that's replicable, and bringing in diverse perspectives for you is you're able to get conviction around the things that you're doing. Absolutely. And then everyone is holding hands, and we can clear the lanes so people can run. I love it. Okay, so you can't have it all. We all try, but it's impossible. So as you build this business, uh, what are the things that you're missing out on? I think the thing that we're the proudest that we're not missing out on is stuff with our kids. And so we, you know, I think it is another place where it helps to have a partner and someone that you trust implicitly 
um, to help cover for each other. And so we just, you know, from the beginning talked a lot about how important it was for both of us to not miss out on the school play, which is always at 1 p.m. in the suburbs. It's hard, but but those things are really important. And so I think, you know, being honest about those things that are the, the most important, which are non-negotiable, which to us just has been kids stuff. Um, helps with everything else and and makes it feel less terrible when you can't go to a friend's dinner or, you know, you don't have six date nights a week with your husband. Um, Things like that, I think, probably, I would say for me, the social piece has been the thing that has been missing the most for me over the last five years. Um, But I feel good about that, given that, you know, I can't remember a school play or an event or a drop off in the morning that I've missed. And I feel proud of that. Um, So I think for me, the trade off has been good. The other thing that I would say that I miss out on between running a business and making time for kids in the ways that are important is hobbies. When I'm at an event and someone asks for that like interesting hobby that you have, I've got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I feel bad about it, but when I really think about it, I don't. Um, Running this business is so fulfilling. Time with family, so fulfilling. So no, I am not going to learn another language this week (laughs) or learn to play an instrument. Uh, Maybe one day, but I'm not going to feel bad about it. I always think about as a kid how many hobbies I had, Mm -hmm. right? Every kid has 97 hobbies. And then you go to college and you start working and the hobbies fall by the wayside. Yes. And that's okay because at certain times you just don't have time. But it's good to recognize that and say, okay, maybe down the line. Or to say, listen, I don't have any hobbies, but I also spent 14 hours yesterday watching CNN. And so maybe I can reallocate that time, <laughs> right. right? I think that is uh, being conscious of how you're spending your time and what you may want to do or can't do at the time makes a lot of sense but it is uh it's we will come up with a very low impact hobby for you before you leave today <laughs> like my hobby is um looking at the sky <laughs> oh looking at water would be a good hobby for you sometimes when when things get intense we just need to go stare at water <laughs> we do have something that we call uh lately the happiness project mm. and and so hobbies might factor into that but it is the point that um actually it isn't enough that we are just running this business successfully and that we are spending time with our families we do need to do things that are personally fulfilling outside of those two things lately just called the happiness project (laughs) it can be anything from like a walk in the middle of the day to having fun thinking about something new to cook you know for dinner uh or it could mean social time with friends but we need to do things that bring us a little joy every day that's wonderful way to look at the world and a lot of the people i talk to who are so busy whether it's luke holden from luke's lobster uh, or some of the other leaders that have been on the show we talk about the fact that you may uh, you may think that working harder is going to make you more productive, but you need to stop and put gas in the tank. And if that means going for a walk or some of the greatest creators and thinkers in the world, get, they get their ideas because they're walking down the street looking at the trees rather than sitting in front of their computers. And mm-hmm. so recognizing that, I think, is, uh, is super important. Uh, so we've had an awesome conversation today, and I've really enjoyed hearing about Primary About You and all the things you're doing. And if listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find out more? Well, definitely check us out. Primary.com is our website. Uh, and also um, all of our social handles are primary.dotcom. All right. Gail and Bernard and Christina Carbonell, thanks for coming by. Thanks Thank so much you. for having us. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is the time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. 
the weather is finally nice here in New York City, and everywhere I go, I see lines of people waiting to experience something. Just down the street from where I'm taping the show, there is a place called the Museum of Illusions where I just saw people waiting an hour just to see illusions. Okay, that sounds crazy, but this is just one of a wave of Instagram-friendly quote-unquote museums with names like the Museum of Ice Cream, Color Factory, and the Museum of Selfies that have popped up all over the place. And my favorite of the genre is called the FOMO Factory. They set up shop for a little while in downtown Austin in 2018, and for the mere sum of $23, visitors could partake in what is described as a quote-unquote immersive selfie experience, where they could snap enough pictures to populate their social media feeds for the foreseeable future. As I wander New York City and the world, I've started snapping photos of these FOMO-inducing situations that I see, and I'm going to post them to my Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis. So check me out there, tag me if you have footage of your own, and uh, I would love to see it. And if you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, if you have pictures uh, of some insane FOMO, or if you just want to connect with a question or an idea, reach out to me at letsconnect@patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis, or find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis. You can also take the official FOMO sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz and find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO. If you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, or if you have a question or comment, reach out to me at let's connect at patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. Also, you can take the official FOMO sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz and find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz to find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. <laughs>